0: Isaiah chapter 53, if you have your Bibles ready to open up, go ahead and move over to the last part of chapter 53. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, Bibles in the, under the seats in front of you, around all over the place, got plenty of them, and you can uh, snag one of those and open it up. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 10, verse 10, the significance of Jesus and his suffering. <clears throat> As you see there on uh, the screens and just follow along on your outline if you want to uh, write some notes it's provided in there as well. The significance of Jesus and his suffering. And we have looked at this chapter for three weeks including today and I really believe this is one of those chapters in the Bible that we will be spending eternity in heaven probing and drilling down and mining on the details of this. And and this is one of those ones that I can't wait to see come all together. And it's going to be a great time. So let's let's review where we've been and where we're going to go this morning. In verse 1 of chapter 53, we see that it is the the arm of Yahweh that is being revealed, that the arm of the Lord is mighty to save. And verse 2 reveals that that is also human. And so that is Christ we see there. He grew up before him. So as a human being, grew up in an ordinary way, nothing that really was remarkable about him in his appearance. There was nothing in... uh, nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. It wasn't like, oh, you know, movie star looks and all this type of stuff. Um, he was just Jesus. He was a carpenter's son and a hardworking kid that, that uh, you know, followed with his dad probably in that, that thing. Uh, he wasn't impressive, needless to say. Verse 3 was then what? Despised and rejected. People ended up being horrified by his appearance, and he was held in low esteem. People underestimated him. Verses 4 through 6, we have really what I said before the theological center of the bible substitutionary atonement christ takes up our pain he carries our sin he dies for it he's pierced for our transgressions he's crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was was upon him and by his wounds we are healed verse 5 jesus gives health to the diseased people at the time that he was there with who are dying and at peace to wicked rebels formerly at war with God. And he does it at the cost of his life. Pays his life for this. Verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 and 9 through 9, we see Christ innocent, willing to be slaughtered. Christ, by his willingness to die in our place, is able to atone for our sins. In some sense, the suffering man was exactly like the sheep being led to slaughter, but in a very significant way, obviously different. He went meekly. And unlike the animal, he knew exactly why he was doing this and why he was going there, why it was happening. He laid his life down for us. No one was taking his life from him. No one could do that. He's God. He laid his life down as an act of his will. So he's different than the animals in that regard. Completely innocent. No violence in his actions or wickedness in his speech. The full scriptural revelation is that Jesus was a perfect man. He was sinless. He died in our place. The prophetic details of this cannot be swept away. They cannot be ignored. Those words like pierced in verse 5 and in fact that he was buried in a rich man's tomb in verse 9, those don't just go away. Those, those just can't become some sort of allegory. They were written way before it happened and it happened exactly as it was written how amazing is all of this we're sheep that constantly go our own direction we are the wicked rebels made sick by sin at war with God before all nations God bears his holy arm in the form of a frail unoppressive human being a son whom we despised and rejected and this one jesus carried our infinite heavy load he died under the huge infinite fierce wrath of god he was buried like i said in a rich man's tomb the same jesus rose from the dead and now he enjoys looking at his spiritual children Day after day, much like this room this morning, people from every background, people from every nation, how awesome is that? How beautiful is the gospel? All of that to lead to verse 10, where we start today. And we see that the will, the will of the Lord prospers in Christ's hand. But Yahweh was pleased. Don't take those words lightly. God was pleased. You see that a few times in Scripture, right? I'm pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. Really, this is the cross from God's point of view. Even though Jesus was crucified by the hands of wicked men, his death was determined by who? God. Beforehand. Acts 2, verses 22 and 23, you can write that down, look it up later. Peter lets us know that. Jesus was not a martyr. When I hear people say that, I I, I cringe. Because they don't understand what Jesus did. He was God's sacrifice for the sins of the world. And every martyr is still dead. Go figure. He didn't remain dead. Verse 10 there, it says what in this? That he shall prolong, he will prolong his days. That means that the servant was resurrected to live forever. In his resurrection, he triumphed over every enemy claimed the spoils of victory that we'll talk about in a few minutes here. Satan, if you remember in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, Satan offered Christ a glorious kingdom in return for worship of him. Hey, Jesus, come on up here. Take a look. All of this could be yours. And Satan could say that, right? Because he, was, he had dominion over the world. All this could be yours if you just bow down to me. If you just worship me. And you know what that would have meant? This little emblem up front here, the cross. That was a way for Jesus to bypass the cross. Just, Just worship me. I'll give you all of the, all of this. didn't do it jesus was obedient until death and god highly exalted him verse 10 says as well that that he the lord will prosper in christ's hand prosperity richness we talked about the fruit before the fruit that comes that's us and I think of this whole picture here where this is talking about this, like the skillful gardener. And, and Jenny and I were outside yesterday in the backyard of our house and kind of looking around at some of the plants that we've destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even name the tree right. It was a hibiscus tree, right, Jen? Yeah, hibiscus. It was an a hibiscus tree it is now fuel for the fire. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is a skillful gardener. The Father entrusted this amazingly complex, deep plan to Him and said, do something with this. And what does Jesus say? Yes. Yes, Father, I will. Your will be done. And he makes it flourish. And he makes it beautiful by his death. The skillful gardener and in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, all of this fruit springs forth. Fragrant, fragrant aroma of worship. You know, when when I'm back here on a Sunday morning, yeah, I, I hear the, the instruments and all of that, but even back here, with everything going on, you know what i 've got seventy eighty voices coming this way, and it's a it 's a fragrant noise sound to my ears I, There are times when I you see, you may, hopefully you don't watch me, but if you do, that's, that's I get it, I'm up front, what are you going to do about it? But there, there's times when I just stop singing, and it's because I, I'm, I'm tearing up, because I see you, and I see you sing, and I see you shouting to the Lord and I go that's that's beautiful those those are the flowers and the vines and and everything that Christ is producing in your life man are you glad that he's our gardener another image would be that of a skillful violinist maybe the father wrote some incredible music and hands it to his skillful son, and he says, here, play this. And he plays it in a way that's never been played before. It's absolutely brilliant. It's perfect. It's beyond perfect. The will of the Lord flourishes in Jesus' hand. We have to remember that. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. and be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous one my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities we know through this section of scripture in isaiah 53 we've seen in verse 8 the cutting off from the land of the living that that sounds like death right Verse 9, assigned a grave with the wicked. Doesn't sound like death now. We know he's definitely dead. Verse 11 makes it clear about what? He didn't stay dead. And you may go, what do you mean? Reread that. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. You may want to circle that. He will see it and be satisfied. So the anguish of his soul, clearly referring to his death, the anguish on the cross, he will see that. Literally says, he will see in the original language. He will see. There's a version of the Bible, the New International Version, that a few of you may have out there, that adds a little more context to it in this case. And I, and I think it's probably helpful. He will see it, the light of life. Well, if you're dead, how will you see it? You're going to be alive. You can't do that unless you are alive. So it speaks of the resurrection and all that you ever see is light anyway. So of course he will see it. The light of life, that's good, that's good with me. This is a clear testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After the suffering of his soul, he will be raised from the dead and see the offspring that is going to come. And we get this clear doctrine once again in verse 11 of substitutionary atonement. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquity. So he kind of flips it for us. One scholar says this about this verse, this verse is the fullest statement of atonement theology in all of the Bible. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. The suffering servant knows it, this knowledge he knows that needs to be met, he knows it must be done because he is righteous. And he's fully accountable to God to do this. He's appointed to satisfy his wrath. He identifies himself personally with our sins. He accomplishes the atonement fully, perfectly once for all time. And so we have this thing that happens here called double imputation. Our sin laid on him, he dies, his righteousness laid on us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A double exchange. R.C. Sproul said it this way, this is the very heart of the gospel. In order to get into heaven, so everyone in here, if you're not a Christian yet, listen. And if you are a Christian, Listen, (laughs) because you need to explain this to someone, maybe. This is the very heart of the gospel, Sproul says. In order to get into heaven, will I be judged by my righteousness or by the righteousness of Christ? I was listening to a new song this week that may, as you know, be sprung on you soon, and this is talking about the all-sufficient Savior. And, and it asks the question, what will happen if I go before God and try to give Him my righteousness? And He answers it, not well. A little more lyrically and, you know, it rhymes and stuff like that. Sproul goes on to say it this way, if I have to trust in my righteousness to get into heaven, I must completely and utterly despair of any possibility of ever being redeemed. That's true, right? Man, if I had to go up there and say, it's just just what I've done in life, I wouldn't even try to go up there. I'd just walk back. Because you just know. But when we see that the righteousness that is ours by faith is the perfect righteousness of Christ, we shall see how glorious is the good news of the gospel. The good news is simply this. I can be reconciled to God. I can be justified, not on the basis of what I do, but on the basis of what has been accomplished for me in Christ. Of course, the Bible teaches a double imputation. Our sins, our sin is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us. In this twofold transaction, we see that God does not compromise his integrity in providing salvation for his people. Rather, he punishes sin fully after it has been imputed into Jesus. This is why he is able to be both just and the justifier the one who has faith in jesus as paul writes in romans 3:26 so my sin goes to jesus you want to, this is not complicated so my sin goes to jesus and his righteousness comes to me that is verse 11 Verse 12 then talks about the glory that's involved in all of this. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors." transgressors. This is a summation of all of these verses, the 12 here, the three before that end chapter 52. The summation ends with the word that we talk about a lot around here. Therefore. The giant sign of pay attention. We're wrapping this up. Therefore. Christ gets what he deserves. Christ gets the spoils of victory. There's a small football game going on this evening. Two teams that have played a boatload of weeks. And when Philadelphia wins tonight, I really don't care, but I had to say something to get a reaction. What happens when that clock hits zero? They, they run out on the field. The, the exhilarating spirit of victory, the spoils of victory. We have won the Super Bowl. We get a silly ring that we can't wear and a big, huge metal football but they get to tell everyone around the world that they're the victors. 35 years ago, our soccer team had never won a game as a college. And I was on that team that was playing in its last game. We got a tie during the year, and you thought we had won the Super Bowl when we got a tie. We were playing against potentially the only worst team in the nation other than us. <laughs> and we were up in San Francisco, and we we're playing, and it was fogged in, it was cold, it was miserable, but we were winning. It was the last game of the season, last game, last opportunity to even partially feel what it's like to be victorious in sports. And in soccer, you just know, after a while, this other team's not going to win. We were up three zip at halftime. And I remember our coach looking all of us in the eyes and saying, don't screw this up. This is our chance. And as that clock kept ticking and they hadn't scored a goal, what was our excitement level like? It kept getting ratcheted higher and higher and higher. And when that referee blew his whistle, how many times at the end of a soccer game? Three We went crazy. I mean, Gatorade all over the coach, screaming and yelling and running around the field, ripping the jerseys off, all of the above. The spoils of victory. It's really kind of a cool thing because that was the last soccer game I ever played. So I went out victorious. as christians we win why because jesus is the victor being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and came obedient to death even death on a cross therefore god exalted him to the highest place because jesus did this for us because jesus conquered sin conquered death, took on our sin, gave us his righteousness. He gets everything that's coming to him. And we see that in Revelation 5. Jesus won the right to come and take the scroll out of the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. He earned it because he died, because he won the victory. It was a triumph. He is the greatest warrior in history. And by the way, his way of fighting is different than any other warriors, greater than Samson, greater than David, greater than any warrior. Jesus' warfare was of a different type. And he deserves the spoils for his victory That is what this verse is saying. He deserves to be honored for it. He deserves to be worshiped. And what are the spoils of his victory? You are. We are. Jesus won us back. If you are a Christian, you belong to him. You belong to your master. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are blood bought, you are blood owned by a marvelous, matchless king, a master, and he gets the spoils, and we are it, a multitude greater than anyone can count, from every tribe, from every language, from every people group, from every nation, bought with his blood, and they belong to him, we belong to him. Now we see here a powerful link between Jesus' atoning work, his blood work, and his intercessory work. There's an indissolvable link between the two of them. Everyone that Jesus shed his blood for, you know what? He prays for. We have to remember he prays for us. Everyone he prays for, he shed his blood for. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors I find that comforting to know that Jesus is at the right hand of God and is saying hey God Scott still deserves to come in he's interceding for all of us Romans chapter 8 says that he lives always lives to make intercession for us permanent priesthood. He's able to save us to the utmost, save us completely because he's constantly praying for us. And what is he praying? Have you ever thought about that? What is he praying? Well, Luke 22, we actually know exactly what he's praying. Simon Peter says that even if all fall away on account of Jesus, he never would. If everyone else turns away, Jesus, I will never, ever, ever, Do that to you. What did Peter do? Denies him immediately after that, like three times. Hardest night of his life. Biggest fall he had ever taken in sin. The worst, most shameful night of his life. And he didn't know it was about to hit him. And Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, Luke 22, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. That's the intercession he makes for you as transgressors. That's the intercession he's making for me that my faith in Jesus won't ever fail until I don't need faith anymore. And when will I not need faith anymore? When I see Him with my own eyes. The day of faith will be over, and I have finished my salvation journey. But you know what? The very fact that all of us in this room are here means that we've got a race to run it is not over yet and it's a hard race i am assaulted every moment of the day by the world of flesh and so are you the devil is after us and he's not going to stop preying on us on me for my faith he's going to still try to get my faith away from me and he's going to try to do that until the race is over so what does jesus pray for us he prays for our faith that it won't fail and how does he pray for that what's the basis of that prayer why does that have any power to it it's on the basis of his shed blood There's two hymns that I was reading this week. There's a hymn called, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, and it says this, Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of His blood. He's pleading on the basis of His blood to His heavenly Father for us. Another hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, is what... The hymn writer put, and he put it this way, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary, Calvary. They pour effective prayers, they strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let the ransom sinner die. And the father hears him pray, his anointed one, he cannot turn away from the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I'm born of God. So this, that's the nature of this intercessory prayer ministry going on. All aspects of the Godhead are involved in this. And the applications of this as we wrap up this incredible chapter this morning, what are the implications? Well, first of all, everyone... I have prayed many times over the last few weeks and continue to pray even this morning for those that may be here that are outside of the gospel. Maybe you've walked in. Maybe you've been here for a while. I don't know. But you, as I said last week, you know if you're lost or not. And I'm pleading with you to come in to His grace, while there's time. You know what? You have to deal with this chapter. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't blow away like dust in the wind. You have to deal with Isaiah 53. You have to deal with the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls say all of this at least two and a half centuries before Jesus. And that history actually tells us that this was written seven centuries before Jesus, and it clearly speaks of one, a servant, who dies in the place of others to bear their sins, and in that way it makes sense of all of the animal sacrificial system in the Jewish system, which outside of that doesn't make any sense at all, frankly. Doesn't. I, I weep for those that are still following the modern Jewish faith system, belief system, the sacrificial system without Christ, because the whole system, the whole Jewish sacrificial system pointed to Christ and was completed in Christ. doesn't make any sense to me other than the fact that Jesus said, yeah, it's probably going to be the hardest for them to accept me. it's my paraphrase. Jesus is the final sacrifice. It makes perfect sense. You have to deal with this. This isn't going away. We've been through all 12 verses here of Isaiah 53 and the three that preceded it. And someday you're going to have to give an account to God for what you have heard here. And I'm asking, I am pleading with you, run to Christ now. And then run with Him in the journey. Repent of your sins. Trust in Him that you might be justified, counted righteous, forgiven by a simple faith in Christ. Because truthfully, there's three imputations that have gone on. And you know what the first one was? The original sin imputed into us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's put in there. We're born with it. Then Christ takes on our sin number two, and then number three, we receive His righteousness. Be counted as righteous. Be counted as forgiven by simple faith in Christ. Come to Christ. Now, if you're a believer, in the time frame, does it matter? Could have happened three seconds ago. Could have happened thirty-five years ago, fifty years ago, two hundred years ago. What did I say last week? And I will say it again: Rejoice! Rejoice in the certainty of your salvation. If you are saved, if Christ. Righteousness has been imputed into your life. Can it be taken away? No, it cannot. Be confident that you are saved. You are continually going astray in sin. I get that. We all do that. All of us, of course, like sheep do that. But be thankful that the Lord has suffered in your place. Trust in Him more and more to fully cure you of wandering. Present those wandering ways to Him. Say to Him, Jesus, cure me of this. You're my shepherd. Lead me and I will follow. Cure me of my wandering ways. But no matter what, know the whole time that that's going on, you are saved. You are atoned for. You are forgiven of your wandering ways. And share this chapter. I said it last week. I'll say it again. This chapter has converting power. Next week, we literally turn the page to Isaiah 54 and talking about the inheritance. But even still, keep sharing Isaiah 53. It's awesome. It explains exactly what happened. It explains exactly what we need And it explains what the victory looks like. Now, to those of you who are suffering in some sort of pain for whatever reason, this is the where the rubber hits the road this week for many people. You are fearful of not just tomorrow. You're fearful of what is staring you in the face when you leave these doors. That pain, that suffering, whatever it is, that for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, you, by God's grace, have set it aside and you have worshipped Him and you have felt built up and you've felt the power of God. And then what happens? You walk out that door and wham! The devil's all over you. May I say to all of you, meditate on the resurrection body that Christ has won for you. That will change things. Think about that. Think about that in the midst of suffering. Man, this is just temporary. Whatever the mess is, physically, emotionally, whatever, this is temporary. I have a new body coming. I have a new home coming. I have no pain, no sorrow, no tears. I have all of that coming. And it will come in a blink of the eye, trust me. For those of you who are a little older in this room, you could probably to attest that every to everyone that is younger in this room, boy, life flies by. And you know what? That's okay. Why? Because God designed it. And it flies by faster and faster. I was listening to, and I, I'm sorry, I will, uh, I will repent of this, but I was listening to Southern Gospel music the other day. And I'll Fly Away, you guys know that song? I'll Fly Away, O oh Lordy. It has really no real theological significance to it or anything like that. But it's just joyful and it's true. There is some theological thing to it. I'm going to fly away. I know for a fact that I'm going to meet Jesus in the air and be with him. think about that some years ago speaking of that song see this is what happens when I've got extra time I can tell <laughs> anyway. we were at a uh, Christian event at Angel Stadium and uh, music artist was doing his thing and all of a sudden he switched gears and went into I'll fly away and he's not known for that style of music. By, by a long shot, not known for that style of music. The stadium was bouncing up and down. Remember that, Jen? And I was like, this is so cool. And I'm doing it too. The song means nothing. But Jesus means everything. And 54,000 people were excited about a new body, a new home. Yeah, I probably spoke into existence. We'll sing that song next week. (laughs) To those of you who are wrestling with sin, picture Isaiah 53. Picture what that sin cost Jesus. Think about what he went through for your sin. Was it say, piercing, crushing? Learn to hate sin as much as the Father hates sin. Hate it. Fight it while knowing what? You're forgiven. That adds an incredible strength to the fight because it isn't a worthless fight. It isn't a fight against the wind. It isn't a fight that can't be won. It has been won. to those of you who are bewildered by what God is doing in your life. God, I have no idea what this is all about. And I'm sure none of you ever asked that. I don't know what that is, but I know it's got to do with some suffering on your part. And you don't know why God is crushing you. But understand, if you are being crushed, it is by God and that he is pleased to do it and that doesn't make any sense but think of Job he's actually pleased to crush you and cause you to suffer he's pleased to do that why? it's because it's for your good the joy that's going to come from it from the joy that's going to come on the other side of those afflictions it's not an accident any of this life None of this life is an accident. None of what's going on, what's happening to you is an accident. You just need to see it through the eyes of Jesus. See it as directly from the hand of God, ultimately for good. That is how we as Christians need to see these things. And then finally, Give Christ the spoil he deserves. You're like, well, what? The spoil was me. Right. Give yourself to Jesus. Present your body to him every moment as what, as it says in Romans, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You're his Victory dance. You're his person that he runs across the field screaming for and holds up and says, This is the prize. You are the prize. Isn't that awesome? He earned it. He earned you. He paid for you. You are His. Give your life to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this incredible change.